Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Well, this week, it's time for another rendezvous. This is our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories that you've seen in the headlines. And this time, we are going to go around the table and we are going to start off with General Deptula. Hey, how are you doing, Slick? I'm doing awesome, sir. We also have Anthony Laser Lazarski. So, Laser, thanks for being with us. Always happy to be here with you, Slick. And of course, Todd Sledge Harmer is with us as well. Great to be here, Slick, and congratulations to the Mitchell Institute for passing the century mark in episodes. Yes, I appreciate that. And for those that might be new, learning that we did 100 episodes is pretty incredible. We've got Sledge and Laser, who are our Washington experts, but I'm really excited to welcome Daniel Rice to this week's roundtable. And a few weeks back, Daniel got a terrific offer to join the team over at the Brood Kurlick Center for Innovation and Future Warfare at the Marine Corps University as a China expert. He is just having an incredible opportunity. But with that good news, Dan is you know still part of the Mitchell team as a non-resident fellow, and he will be a regular voice on the podcast to help us better understand China. So Dan, congratulations. It's totally awesome to have you back. And uh, like we said, uh, we just celebrated that 100th episode of the podcast last week. And given all that you did, I really want to take a moment to say thanks on that front as well. Hey, Slick, thank you so much for the kind words and congratulations on the 100th episode. It's a really big moment. So it's great to be back and I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Well, awesome. Me too. And we got to jump into it because we have a ton of issues to cover. So we need to keep this conversation rolling through all the topics. So General Deptula, let's get started with you. The administration released the National Defense Strategy this past week. This is a delayed release because of the events in Ukraine that demanded a reassessment on some key points. So, sir, what's your thoughts on this version? Well, Slick, before I do that, I just remind the audience that uh, don't forget the administration also released its National Security Strategy since our last session together as well. So let me summarize quickly the impact of both. Bottom line up front on the administration national security strategy is its excessive focus on climate change to the exclusion of focus on strengthening our military to the point where it could actually execute that strategy. My concern in the new national security strategy is its obvious refusal to recognize a serious wake-up call needed to pursue force structure and readiness improvements that would allow us to deter and, if necessary, prevail in any conflict with China. You've heard us say, and we'll keep on saying it, that our military has been dramatically weakened over the past three decades by resource cuts, neglect, and bad strategic choices. And that's just not me saying that. There was a blaring alarm in this regard contained in the recent Heritage Foundation military index where it rated the Air Force from weak last year to very weak this year, its lowest possible rating. Now, as a result of chronic In serious underfunding, the Air Force, at its 75th anniversary, is currently the oldest, the smallest, and the least ready it's ever been in its history. If you look beyond the Air Force, defense readiness rates look like post-Vietnam rates, or worse, 
Recruitment deficits don't seem to be solvable for many reasons, and there's no sense of urgency in making investments in force structure that even if made today would be lead time behind need. So alarm bells should be going off, but guess what? There isn't a word about defense to be heard in any of the midterm election debates or discussions. Now, the national security strategy does acknowledge a threat from China, but then it makes wholly unrealistic pledges of cooperation with China. By calling climate the existential threat to the United States and encouraging cooperation with Beijing on this issue, the strategy creates really a dangerous contradiction because the focus on climate is going to make it harder to meet the real threat from China. I'd tell you it was bad enough after the Ukraine invasion began when John Kerry said, I hope we can end this war soon so we can get back to having Putin's help on climate change. Unfortunately, the latest national security strategy reflects that sentiment, and quite frankly, it's a pathway to defeat. Now, with respect to the national defense strategy, which is a sub-element of the national security strategy, it focuses on a concept called integrated deterrence, but with no specifics articulated to reverse the decline in U.S. military capabilities to achieve sufficient deterrence. Instead, it's counting on allies which, don't misinterpret me, are extraordinarily important. But it shouldn't be relying on allies to compensate for the U.S.'s declining military capacity. That's not a strategy for success. And I guess I'd underline these comments by saying neither the new national security strategy or defense strategy offer any force-sizing construct or specifics about the numbers of forces the U.S., actually needs to carry out its goal of deterring our adversaries, or winning if deterrence fails. And all of us who've devoted our lives to national defense should be alarmed by this. The new national defense strategy is totally inadequate for the needs of today, much less for the future. So, sorry for the Debbie Downer, but I'm trying to be candid here. No, sir. We, we always appreciate it. And I think that's why our listeners tune in. I want to get Laser and Sledge here to weigh in and just ask, you know, how have folks in town in D.C. responded to the document? I'll jump in for I mean, I, I'd say it, it's mixed. And, I, you know, when you when you look at it overall and, and take a strategic look, it's not a lot of not a lot different from some of the, the past national defense strategies you've seen. But what we do see is China. And, and I think and, and you guys probably will talk about it more, but where China sits as a threat. And then Russia sits as a threat, you know, a pacing threat for China, a cute threat uh, for Russia. And then it goes into uh, Iran and North Korea. And it talks about still being able to go ahead and, and do other things besides just China, Russia. And again, we know there's a classified version here. But it comes down to trade-offs. I mean, it, you, you can read the strategy. Okay, it sounds great. But uh, where are we on force structure, which there's no discussion of that? Where are we on modernization versus readiness, right? And then when you start looking at when we trade off of what are we going to give up so that we can get something in the future? And we talked about the wimpy syndrome, you know, where we give up something today, we'll gladly buy you something tomorrow. But the problem that we've seen in the past is Air Force has given up people and things. And as General Dip 
Tula correctly said, we're the smallest, oldest, and least ready force in our history. So the new piece, I, I think there are some issues in there with some of the retirements as submarine launch, cruise missile, the nuclear, the B-83. I mean, there's the nuclear piece when you've got a growing nuclear threat, and I think Congress will have a say in what happens there. But that's the one area I think I would highlight. And the only thing I'll end with is our adversaries get a vote. And, you know, we, we write these things, but we've tried to get out of the Middle East for so long, but we can't because there's things still going on there. But it, so as you look through the strategy overall, I think they, from a strategic point of view, highlight the threats, but the devil's in the details. And that's what we need to see. And that's what's missing. Yeah, laser, great point. Sledge, how about you? Yeah, the only thing I would add, and, and I agree with what's been said previously, this, you know, like most of these strategies, first of all, the national interest does not change between administrations. So you don't see a whole lot of change in the strategy. Although I, I was disappointed. I think there were a lot of happy words and platitudes in, in this. And the reaction to that has been largely predictably partisan. Where you sit is where you stand on the strategy here. But I think the real question is, will resources follow strategy? And we'll see that when the FY24 budget request goes over to Capitol Hill early next year. I couldn't help but think of the the old wise words of a former professor at the National War College. It said, a vision without resources is a hallucination. And whether or not we properly resource this strategy determines whether or not it's a vision for our future defense or if it's a hallucination. A sledge just spot on. You know, th thanks for reminding us of that quote because it's it's pretty accurate. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, again, for me as a dumb fighter pilot, I'm like, yep, no bucks, no buck Rogers. Right. So we've got to have this thing that this follow through. And, and I'm really excited to ask our next guest this question. So, Dan, you've got to weigh in here. Do we ever see the Chinese responding to these documents or are they just going to maintain radio silence? Yeah, thanks. Like, so I need to caveat everything I say with right all of the media that comes out of China is controlled by the CCP. It's very specific messaging. The scary thing here is that they take some of the things that, you know, quite frankly, you, you gentlemen have discussed, things like not having the resources necessary to execute the strategy. And what they do is they take that and extrapolate that, right? So how they have smeared the U.S. is saying the national security strategy has these grandiose goals and objectives, but the U.S. doesn't have the firepower, the resources behind the strategy, and therefore they're not a trustworthy partner, right? And they use that to try to bend the relationships that we obviously are trying to maintain in the Indo-Pacific specifically. Some of the other things that they've latched onto is in the national security strategy, we mentioned a lot about allies and partners and how critical they are. Well, China's taken that a step further and said, well, that's old Cold War mentality thinking right there. The U.S. is trying to create blocks. And again, that serves their purpose of trying to spread messaging of how China believes itself to be a, a good alternative to the U.S. model of things, right? They're trying to say, hey, China is not trying to create blocks. It's not trying to go back to the old Cold War there are other alternatives and, you know, as Xi Jinping says, quote unquote, win-win scenarios between China and what it thinks is its partners. Fortunately for us, we know that that's all just hot air and that China is really just trying to manipulate the messaging. But it is scary when you do look at the situation on the ground and when we do have the national security strategy and we don't have the resources behind it, it does lead to China being able to poke holes, right? So... 
That's pretty much the things that I've seen coming out of some of the Chinese media. The last thing is obviously is an undercurrent in everything I've said, but they perceive the U.S. as weakening and not being able to maintain its its objectives. So. Well, Dan, thanks for that. And I'm just going to pile on quickly after being at a pretty interesting discussion last week about how the army now is pushing to convert everything that they have on the ground. So you're talking tanks, Humvees, et cetera, to be EVs. Okay. So now we're going to have to source uh, lithium for batteries, which 70% come from China. And now China, in order to keep up with that demand, that we're going to give them for our military, which is a head scratcher. But they're opening a hundred coal plants this year to generate the electricity and, and the power to be able to keep up with these plants and everything else. So it's just, it, it is crazy, Dan. And I appreciate having you to be able to translate, literally translate what you're, you're reading and listening to coming from China to put that in context for us. So I'm going to shift gears here for a second with General Deptula. And this is, this is pretty cool that you and some of the Mitchell team have received invitations to the B-21 rollout, which is scheduled for December 2nd in Palmdale, California. And I've got to say, as an aviation geek, I'm so excited just to see this rollout. And I think we all have images of what these rollouts look like fixed in our mind, especially, you know, those that have come from Palmdale. Things like the XB-70, the B-1, the B-2, the X-35, and now the B-21. So aside from the cool factor, sir, can you explain what, what does this rollout really mean in the broader security context? Well, Slick, we're really fired up to see this long overdue long-range sensor shooter rollout. And as you can surmise from my earlier remarks, none too soon. We need this capability and sufficient capacity, and we need it fast. The B-1 fleet's been significantly reduced. B-52 re-engineering is going to see a significant portion of that force unavailable to the mid-2030s. And the B-2 force is 112 aircraft smaller than it should have been at 20 instead of 132, its original design inventory. So let's hope that our nation's security leadership doesn't make that mistake again by buying too few B-21s. We need long-range strike capacity as fast as possible in volume. So the Air Force needs to consider expanding the B-21 production line to allow for more tails to be built at any given time. That would also allow for allied sales which we ought to be encouraging for countries like the United Kingdom, Australia, and Japan. So my thought is we ought to be planning for buying at least 180 minimum. Well, sir, let's uh, let's just double that because you know that they're at least going to cut our request in half. So <laughs> kind of basic negotiation 101, isn't it? So, so. yes, sir. <laughs> Well, Sledge, I want you to hop in here, and I've got to ask you, do people in the broader policy and budget community in the D.C. region get this? And, and, you know, what are your thoughts in general? Yeah, Slick, I'm not sure in the broader budget and policy community everyone gets it. I, I do think the aviation geeks and then the narrower budget and policy group, they, they understand this. And I think they will be the voice of reason that makes this work. My concern is the B-21 program gets conflated with the rest of the nuclear modernization requirements. And that it competes for resources against the Sentinel program, you know, against the the submarine-launched nuclear cruise missile that Congress is supporting, you know, against opposition from the administration. And and I would say, too, that, you know, I just echo what has been said previously. The number that the Air Force says they need, their acquisition objective, needs needs to be a floor, not a ceiling. 
I would say 180, let's, let's put that number up above 200 because we need the capability and we need the capacity. As you know, our friend V.I. Lennon said long ago, quantity has a quality all its own. Yep. Could not agree more. And, and Laser, how are the folks on the Hill viewing this program? So I'd say overall positive, but I'm, I'm going to bring out a couple of things. Number one, resource constraints. Uh, so let's just have it. We're going to be under a constrained resources, no matter what happens up on the Hill or what happens after this election or the next election, but we're resource constraints. So they're going to be looking at, well, where are the trade-offs? And I agree. I, you know, we cannot accept another F-22 fleet, another B-2 fleet. We just, you cannot execute operations and execute the missions, number one. Uh, on the Hill, fully support. And, and the other neat thing, I mean, if, in fact, if you look at Adam Smith on time, on budget, they're making it work in every way possible. So it's been positive. Now it's black. You know, I worked the program 13 and 14 when I was on the SASC. So I get to see, you know, both, you know, both competitors out there. They were doing the right thing. They were following the 117 model. I'm excited to see it come out. But now when it comes out in the open and now it becomes more scrutiny, the key thing for the Air Force is to make sure it stays on time, on budget. The last plane that we did that stayed on on time, on budget with the 117 when we produced it. And then we've got to justify. I agree with the increased numbers, but we're going to have to go up and justify why we need, you know, what are the requirements to drive these increased numbers. I, I think I think 180 is probably low, especially if we're going to take care of the B1s, the B2s. We've got threats in both sides of the world, so we're going to need more, and I agree about the exports. I think there's good support if you look at Senator Collins. Murray, you're going to be leading the appropriations. you got Granger, DeLauro. you got Smith and Rogers, Reed, Wicker. I think we've got great support, and then if you look where it's going, you know, from Ellsworth, Whiteman, Dias, as well as uh, Tinker, and then in Palmdale for production, you've got members that are going to be very, very supportive and protective of the system. But again, it, you know, it's all going to happen and to come up on trade-offs in the future. Thanks, Laser. I appreciate that. All right, Dan, the Chinese Communist Party just held their Congress. So in the land of geopolitics, this was huge. So can you break it down for us, explain what happened? What does this mean for China and how should it impact our calculus regarding our pacing threat? Sure, absolutely. And I'll try to make this as wave top as possible. Bottom line, it's a once every five year massive meeting of the entire CCP, Chinese Communist Party, right? It's where they shake down their leadership within the party itself. So the thing that people have probably seen in the headlines, Xi Jinping's third term, right? That is actually not all that surprising to the China Watcher community. You know, we've been tracking this for quite some time, is pretty expected. What was a little bit more unexpected was how dramatic the consolidation of power happened under Xi Jinping. So some of the big things, the CCP used to actually have factions where people shared different thoughts. They were under different schools of thought and how to approach governing the country. Those factions are pretty much gone now. It's all Xi Jinping centric now. Uh, some of the other things, age limits, which used to be a an unwritten rule is retire at the age of 67. That is now gone. Some other things that are pretty important that have happened is before under Deng Xiaoping, I think back to Nixon, Kissinger, Deng Xiaoping opening up and reform. He actually thought or had the idea of China would be governed by the rule of law, right? Which meant that it might be a more even-handed player. Well, that has changed too. You know, now the CCP is the utmost political figure. It is now CCP law and whatever the CCP says. So those are all pretty big things. And what it really means for us is that when we're looking at China now, we really, really have to pay attention to how is Xi Jinping 
thinking. What is he doing? How is he approaching different issue sets? And then weighing what we believe his calculus might be against what our options are. The final thing that I will mention here too is that there's a big question now of how long will Xi Jinping continue to rule the country. One of the things that he did during this Congress was that he said there's a definitive end to the first centenary, which was established under Deng Xiaoping. And now he's set 2049, 2037 as his years, right? So we might be looking at 15 more years of Xi Jinping rule, potentially. Obviously, we have to wait and see what happens. But that just means, again, everything is going to be very personality-centric. And if people don't, within the CCP, if people don't align with Xi Jinping, we can expect that their careers will probably be cut short. So watch out for that. Thanks, Dan. General Deptula, you were quoted in a Financial Times story that it really shook up the defense community here in D.C. and the allies as well. And for those that didn't hear, this is the fact that the F-15Cs and Ds are getting pulled from Okinawa and they won't be directly backfilled with assigned tails. Instead, the Air Force will bridge with a rotational presence. Now, I got to say, I've read a lot of these stories about this, and I think the pundits have it wrong. A lot are slamming the Air Force. Isn't this about a broader set of reality, sir? Yeah, absolutely spot on, Slick. Air Force is actually being forced to make moves like this because of presidential, congressional, and DOD decisions, leadership decisions over the past 30 years that underfunded the Air Force and cut its force structure with no replacements. Now, the Air Force has consistently said that it's not sized to meet the mission demands that the combatant commands place on it. It conducted a study back in 2018 that showed it had about a 25% deficit in capacity to meet the needs of the national defense. That study is still valid today, except here's the difference. Demand's even higher now, given world events, and the Air Force is even smaller today than it was in 2018. Now, if we go back and look at what happened and the kind of decisions I'm talking about, the origins of the termination of the permanent presence of the last two F-15 squadrons on Kadena lie with the decision, decisions to cut the original 750 F-22s planned in the 1990s to a validated requirement of 381 in 2000, and then to prematurely halt F-22 production at 187 airframes in 2009 by a very short-sighted Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates, who didn't see China as a threat and stated so back in 2007. So this saw F-15Cs extended well beyond their original design <laughs> lifetime. I'd like to remind the audience that the first flight of the F-15 was 1972, and I'll do the math for you, that was 50 years ago. It's now been 13 years since Secretary Gates made his disastrous decision, and the F-15Cs are now structurally exhausted, plain and simple. Additionally, the Air Force, as a result, is no longer training new active duty F-15C pilots. So there are also factors regarding force management and career progression for the current Kadena-based pilots. They're the only active duty F-15 pilots left, and they can't stay there beyond a normal tour length. So the Air Force has been put in a position that it has to sunset the F-15C force. And by the way, 
I was in the initial group of F-15C pilots that stood up the first squadron on Kadena back in first F-15C squadron back in 1979. So this is a significant emotional event for me too. The force structure of shortfall in the Air Force is also due to a significantly reduced F-35 production rate that never materialized. That purchase rate is simply not scale as required. And in fact, production significantly dropped from what it was originally planned due to a variety of different circumstances, which would take a show on its own. The F-15EX is years away from operational volumes necessary to fill squadron-level requirements. And capabilities like collaborative combat aircraft are at least a decade away and are still largely conceptual. So the bottom line is we need to buy fighter capacity now at a rate to reverse the decline in fighter force structure because what's happening at Kadena is only the tip of the iceberg if we don't increase that fighter force procurement rate. And the alternative is to accept more risk. And doing so means that there'll be insufficient capability and capacity to execute that new national defense strategy that we discussed that's so reliant on deterrence. Because without the forces to assure decisive and overwhelming victory, a force to fight, deterrence is only an aspiration, not a reality. Well, sir, I mean, yeah, there's so much to unpack with, with this decision. I mean, the fact that we're going to send units TDY essentially to backfill a major, you know, air defense base at Kadena just sh- should be sending shockwaves to everybody. And, you know, you, you laid it out well. What was supposed to happen was all these Eagle drivers were supposed to come Raptor drivers and that are the replacement airplanes that are supposed to, to be there or F-35. And I just have to point out, you know, it's crazy that we are reducing our presence in the Pacific. So obviously, we're just as a nation, it seems like we're going in the wrong direction. So I want to bring Sledge and Laser in to get your thoughts, you know, and what do you think this news could do to shake up people, maybe to, to really emphasize the need to ramp up F-35 production? Sledge, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, I, I'm actually I'm going to leave the F-35 production issue to laser. I just I want to pick on a thread here. It's a comment that Dan said earlier about the calculus in Beijing. First of all, I, I don't think the Air Force had a choice. The F-15s at Kadena are more than 1,000 flight hours beyond their service life. It's it just not sustainable. But the question is, with a rotational force, how do you replace 48 F-15 aircraft? We do not have enough F-22s to do it on a one-for-one. So the, the question is, what type of force package is the Air Force going to use on a rotational base, whether it be, you know, fourth-generation fighters? You're sure not going to pull anything off the peninsula, you know, whether it be the available F-22s and F-35s. The bottom line here is, you know, we, we've got to change the calculus in Beijing. We've got to delay the decision for the Chinese to make the 100-mile swim as long as possible. And you've got to have capacity to do that, not just capability. And and I guess so my concern was whatever you do at Kadena needs to change that calculus. I'm not, I'm not pointing blame, but again, we've highlighted this issue. Uh, we're stuck with where we are. I agree that there is nothing we can do to continue these 40 plus, you know, year old aircraft, continue to keep the mission ready. So again, I can't, 
we take 22s, but again, General Deptuli, you brought it out. I mean, you know, when you look at the number of 22s and look at operational, roughly 142, and then look at a 51% mission capability rate, 58 aircraft that's supposed to be going everywhere in the world, but we've got to replace it with something. This rotational capability is going to be costly. And then we talked about this with C-17s on, on an earlier podcast, and you had mentioned it, but you continue to wear down. You continue to put more hours on these jets which then is going to shorten their lifespan until we do another slep or whatever we're going to do. So we need to accelerate the production. And again, I would accelerate the production of F-35s, accelerate the production of F-15EXs, because this is the tip of the iceberg. We're going to see other retirements out there with no aircraft to replace them. And I'll go back, and Dan and Sledge, you said it right, and you said China perceives this as weakening. I mean, the, when deterrence is capability as well as, I mean, so you have to have the assets in place, but also the willingness. And I don't know if we're showing either to the Chinese. Yeah, let me jump in here on the rotational presence as a solution, because while that might meet some requirements in the near term, it stresses those deployed aircraft, the maintenance teams that have to support them, the deployed aircrew members and their families exactly at a time where pilot retention in the Air Force is a serious problem. It also deprives other combatant commands of these most capable fighters in the world at a time when demand for them is very high. Guess what? The location where some of these F-22s are going to be sourced from to do a rotation on Okinawa are now currently deployed to Europe to deter Putin. So, you know... Back to Sledge's comment earlier, quantity has a quality all of its own. And unfortunately, we've been put in this situation. The Air Force has been put in this situation by 30 years of underfunding and poor decisions to cut the force without recapitalizing it. Yes, sir. And I was just going to add quickly that, you know, the F-15C community has lived this already in Iceland, right, in the 90s. And to your point of going back historically, when we talk about the fact that the Air Force never left the Middle East since Desert Storm, which you obviously know a lot about, sir. And now we're just, you know, creating a new northern or southern watch by sending folks over to PACAF now. It's crazy. All right, Dan, quickly, how does uh, China read into these sorts of developments? Sure. So unfortunately, I don't know if I can do it very quickly because a couple things here. But I mean, first off, everything that everybody said stands true, right? I mean, if you're if you're thinking it, you're reading it. China is also thinking that as well. So some of the, I don't know if I want to call it a good news story, but one of the developments that happened recently was in that shakedown of the leadership of the CCP, the new vice chairman of the Central Military Commission, pretty much China's top military body, were also selected. And the good news here is that what it appears, the two gentlemen, Zhang Yuxia and Ho Weidong, they don't appear to be war fighters in the sense of going and trying to persecute a war with any any country. So they're much more focused on the development of their own military at home, building things like joint operations capabilities, building up more modern aircraft, more modern assets across the different forces. So that's kind of a good thing for us because it means that the likelihood of an actual war kicking off, it might be a little bit lower. The bad news, as everybody has already mentioned, is quantity is a quality all of its own, right? So if China is continuing to build up its forces, then it, it starts to look 
shockingly, a little bit like an arms race between the U.S. and China. Fortunately, I think we have the edge in that in certain ways. But again, we do need to reinvest, make sure that our production capacity across all the different areas that embodied in what you would consider as forces being able to be projected, things like munitions, things like platforms, things like shipbuilding, all of these different aspects, we need to really make sure that we have the capability at home to produce those things in order to actually be able to deter. If we don't do that, China certainly is doing that. They will continue to do that, as I mentioned, probably for the next 15 years. And if they are outpacing us in this regard, we're going to have some serious problems on our hands. Yeah, well said, Dan. So we've got midterm elections coming up. So laser and sledge, what are the impacts when it comes to defense as you consider you know, possible outcomes here? We could see the House or the Senate flip. Are we seeing any key members at risk whose departure could you know, really shake things up? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab at that one first. I, first of all, I think retirements are going to have more of an impact on defense policy and funding than the uh, the elections. And I, and I say that for a couple of reasons. First, defense is largely a bipartisan issue. And and while we may have a few new faces that are on the defense committees, I, I don't think that's going to dramatically affect based on the, the national security interests of the country. You know, but when, when you have Senator Shelby, Senator Leahy, Senator Inhofe, all of whom are retiring at the end of this Congress, uh, those are big shoes to fill. So I think there's going to be some change. Now, the people that are slated to replace them are strong supporters of national security. So I really don't see that as a major thing. In the lead up to the elections, though, there's been a lot of talk about, and I'll use Ukraine as an example, if the Republicans take control of the House, that they're going to scrutinize what we spend on Ukraine. I would just you know, remind the listeners out there that governing is a lot different than campaigning. And a lot of things that are said to your constituents to get elected don't necessarily match with what the reality of national security is. You know, and I hearken back to the days when um, when President Eisenhower was leaving office and and President Kennedy was elected, basically saying that there was a huge missile gap between the Soviets and the uh, the Americans. And after he was elected president and was received the classified briefs and realized that there wasn't a missile gap. Eisenhower offhandedly said, congratulations, Mr. President, you've closed the missile gap in only 18 days. So I, I think a lot of that's going to be true as well, that it's, it's bipartisan. The national security interests will reign supreme and we will continue uh, regardless of who wins on November 8th. Just following up, I think the team that we have coming in, I mean, it, it's tough to lose Leahy's and Shelby's and Inhofe's, but if you look who's come from behind, from Senator Collins, Senator Murray, then we still have Representative DeLauro and Granger over on the House side, great appropriators and great supporters of defense. So exactly, I, I think we continue to get support. And then on the authorizers, you know, we have Senator Wicker coming up. And again, a great, just a great supporter of our military. So I think we're in, in great shape. I think that the House, I, I don't think anybody would disagree, the House will likely flip. So, you know, that has Granger and uh, Rogers there. And again, the, if you listen to what they said and in increasing funding for the military, again, I, I think it'll, we're in good shape. On the Senate, I think you can flip a coin. I don't know where that's going to go right now. And there's a lot of close races uh, that we have to watch. But uh, Senator Wicker, Senator Reid, like Senator Inhofe, very close. 
close. Senator Reid, very pro-defense, obviously, a former Army. And then when you look at Collins and Murray, I think we're going to be doing very well. So we'll be okay, but it's still going to be a, I think, obviously, it'll be a split government. So there's going to have to be a lot of compromises that have to go in. I think we'll see similar budgets uh, that we've seen in the past, and then Congress will have to go ahead and increase defense spending. Well, thanks for that, Laser. And that leads me into my next one. You know, where do we stand with the National Defense Authorization Act and the defense portion of the appropriations bill? Because, you know, we're already in a continuing resolution when it comes to uh, appropriations. So what does the rest of the year look like and what's at stake? So let's go Sledge and then Laser. Yeah, Slick, unfortunately, not a lot has changed in the last two podcasts that we've had on this topic. We're still under a continuing resolution that runs through the 16th of December the Senate has started considering amendments to their the SASC passed NDAA, and Laser, I'm sure, has a lot more on the actual execution and timing there. But we're probably not going to see anything major happen until Congress returns on the 14th of December when they decide what the top line spending for defense is going to be. And then if you look at a calendar, your time constraint there, there's really only 20 legislative days available from the time Congress comes back until the CR expires. So whatever happens, it's going to happen fast. And I would just say buckle up. Laser? It's going to it's going to be all quiet. I agree until the 14th. You know, I'll just go into the defense authorization there. They have been working nonstop on the weekends to conference the substitute amendment that we saw that Senator Reid filed. It was the Inhofe, the Reid substitute amendment, which had the Senate the SAS passed bill along with the 75 amendments. And what was interesting is when the bill first came up it was 800 pages standard size for an NDAA, but then they added on all these other authorization bills to it. You know, the State Department, Maritime Coast Guard, Taiwan Act. I mean, there there's a whole, and now it's, it, there's a whole, I think about 10 or 12, but it's up to 2,900 pages, large bill. They've been conferencing it. The outside committees have to get agreement to get these large packages, these large bills through, uh, but they've been working hard, and the intent is to try to get it essentially as as complete as they can from the, at the staff director level and below until they return on the 14th. And then starting on the 14th, when the members are back, that's when the big four, the ranking member and the chairs will get together and try to iron out the remaining details. And the objective of the staff directors is to get them to as little as possible. I don't see right now anything that's going to disrupt. And if it does disrupt, it's going to get tossed out of the bill and not kept in the bill since it's a must-pass bill. So be looking for to finish up really near the end of November. So that first week, the end last week in November, first week of December, uh, they will have it ready to try to bring to the House floor if they get floor time and then over to the Senate floor. But it's all dependent on when they get floor time. But their plan is to get it done. And on the approach, you know, Sledge had it right. There, there's no discussions until they come back so they know who has the majority in the House and the Senate. And then they can start working these top lines out. Roger that. Again, appreciate the two of you for bringing the perspectives that you do to this podcast. And we're getting close to being out of time, but I don't want to skip this one. General Deptula, congratulations to you and the Mitchell team for hosting the first annual Space Power Security Forum. We included so many key Space Force leadership folks, international air chiefs, senior industry executives, and the seats were packed. So what were your top observations there? Well, first, uh, thanks for bringing this up, Slick. There was an amazing turnout for our first ever Space Power Security Forum Day. We had over 300 registered attendees, and as you mentioned, an all-star cast of speakers from former astronauts to air chiefs from the Royal Air Force and the Italian Air Force, not to mention industry partners, both big and small, and some of our top U.S. Space Force leaders. 
I got to tell you, I was really impressed with the quality of the discussion, which is another indicator of how far the discourse on national security space has come in just a few short years. Mitchell's really proud that we can do this for the space community at an unclassified level, and we're already looking forward to the next one that we're going to host in early 2023. Now, in the interest of time, I'd like to refer our listeners to our website where you can listen to recordings of any of the speakers in the panels. But again, thanks for asking, and it just is great evidence of how far along our Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence is progressing. Absolutely, sir. Yes. And thanks for pointing out to the listeners that they can hear that stuff on our website. All right. We've got to wrap it up today. Sir, General Deptula, I want to say thanks again for making the time to be here. Yep. Always great. And look forward to next time. And Laser and Sledge, as always, great to get your top-level insight into uh, what's going on in D.C. Thanks, Slick. Glad to be here. Take care. And Dan, I got to tell you, how awesome to have you here on the show as our China expert. And congratulations on the new job and being a a non-resident fellow with Mitchell. Thank you so much, Slick. It's always awesome to be here and looking forward to future conversations. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.